Welcome to Truthiverse, the number one podcast for free and discerning minds. I'm your host, Brendan Murphy, author and founder of The Truthiversity. As a freedom hacker and truth addict, it's my job to help you reclaim yourself from illusion and live in your power. Living in truth sets you free to holistically upgrade your entire life so you can explore infinite possibility. Join me as we hack our way to a higher evolution. If you haven't already booked your seat for the End of COVID Summit, make sure you do it now. The End of COVID features 90 videos from short films to interviews to long-form presentations. It's like a podcast combined with an online class since all of the content is organized into 10 different learning modules. With this educational experience, we can end the next scamdemic before it starts by unlearning everything we were told to believe about our health and the history of so-called contagions. To start streaming for free, just go to theendofcovid.com slash ref slash 346. All right, welcome to this episode of Truth of Us. And this week I'm joined by Troy McLaughlin, who is the author of The Saturn Death Cult, which is a very interesting piece of work. His research is very, very, very fascinating. Um, so I'm, I'm stoked to have Troy on to discuss his work in this realm. And without me blathering about it, I'm going to just ask the man himself how he got into this arena, what it's about, how you got started. Troy, welcome and, and do jump in. This is all mine. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Pleasure. Um, yeah, Brendan, I, um, I basically sat in death cult was written uh, as a result of uh, quite a few years of looking into alternative uh, cosmological theories that uh, a lot of people trace back to Emmanuel Velikovsky. And my own experience uh, with the world of Emmanuel Velikovsky, which I've got to say at the outset, things have moved on since his day, but he he's kind of the pioneering father of a lot of the, the um, concepts that people like me, uh, you know, take up as far as his uh, cosmological history goes. Hmm. I, at Auckland University, I um, majored uh, in Egyptology. And uh, my experience there with the Egyptologist uh, when asking about Velikovsky was one of uh, total hostility towards the man, which I would later find out as a result of his sort of being put out as a heretic uh, out of the science, science community and so on like that. All it did was make me more interested. That kind of hosti hostility tends to sort of go, well, there might be something I might want to have a look at it. Uh, it was mm -hmm. an innocent question at the time. I mean, yeah. It could have gone one way or the other, and I would have probably believed him, but the hostility was what sort of you know put me into that uh, kind of research and um you know many years later when I was uh, you know I, I've been following these kinds of studies um all the way through uh, since university I moved to Hong Kong uh, lived there for 15 years uh, back to New Zealand for a while I'm now in the UK but um I wrote uh, the book Set in Death Cult um about 11 years ago it's in a second version now uh, edition which is much more complete the first edition was pretty much a first draft uh, of uh, of these concepts but it was really a reaction because I was seeing a lot of people in the alternative um uh research world um you know looking at aspects of mythology looking at aspects of uh, physics uh, and I thought that there was a, a definite chance to alert people to a theory that seemed to fit what many of these people were saying uh, was noticeable aspects of uh, past history in terms of the human experience and, and in terms of the uh, cosmological um, uh, you know, templates or, or, or theories that they have for how, how it works. And I felt that many of them were um, not quite 
they, they, it was like they were discovering that there was something about the planet Saturn that looms very large uh, in mythology in its place that is at odds with where Saturn is now in terms of the, the naked eye uh, visualization of where Saturn is. Why was this planet so prominent in, in, in mythology? And that crossed over to other um, uh, researchers, people like uh, Joseph P. Farrell uh, and so on, who who connect a lot of this stuff uh, in mythology to what's actually going on in our modern day society, how this has affected the socioeconomic uh, political uh, realms. Yeah. And uh, for me, um, putting out a theory uh, that's called Saturn theory in a subset, uh, which is a subset of the electric universe uh, paradigm of uh, um, cosmology, uh, the idea was to show that there is a definite link in how socio-economic political events have transpired over the last 5,000 years to what is related to us through mythology, if you have a key about the role that the planet Saturn played, uh, the very natural role, uh, by that I mean naturalist um, role of uh, Saturn's uh, influence on, on what mythology was. and, and uh, this is this is one of the reasons why I felt it was important to get this connection um, that uh, shows that mythology is more than how people most people think of mythology is that you know a bunch of fairy tales made up stuff that you know at, at, at best um, psychological um, you know uh, crutches that people use that inform their religions at a later date and and so on. But it's become a byword for fairy tales for made up stories uh, not to be taken seriously as a part of history mm. and uh it's it, this is my attempt to give a, a an alternative understanding of that that shows mythology is actually the written record of some very very real events that have taken place within the uh living memory of the human species yeah yeah that's a great um overview so um, it started with Velikovsky, um, the hostility of the professor, you know, piqued your interest and you felt yeah. like you had to look into this and um, and took it from there. Yeah, over many years, it was just something I kept coming back to. Um, and, uh, you know, there were many, many other uh, influences. So you run the whole gambit. Uh, you know, there, there was a time when I looked at Hollow Earth. There was a time that I looked at, uh, you know, various other theories and so on. But what um, solidified everything was that much later, um, it was the work of people like Dave Talbot, Eduardo Cardona through the Electric Universe paradigm, the guys over at Thunderbolts.org uh, with their, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of insights that we effectively, we live in an electric universe uh, that uh, where electrical influences are far, far more uh influential than the you know gravity only driven model of modern physics yep. and uh you know but but there's also there is also the very real um most of the guys over at thunderbirds and so on don't really look at the socio-economic impacts this has had on our modern society hmm. and you know if there is anything i would like people to uh go away from when they read my book is that they've got a key to understanding how symbols and um archetypes can be manipulated for uh you know uh what's the word um well 
there's a lot of malfeasance behind the use of symbols and archetypes in the modern world. And essentially the book argues that this has all led to the successful implementation of what I call the central bank uh, banking model of international debt finance, uh, which is one of the most destructive uh, aspects of, of modern society and has led, you know, especially in the 20th century uh, yeah. to the, the, the various wars and so on. It's that old saying that the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, a, it's an old biblical saying that it's very apt. Mm -hmm. Central banking and its interest system is very much um, that thing that we must deal with in order to solve so many of the problems that we that we have in the world today. But those yeah. that perpetuate it are solidly in uh, are experts at using archetypes and symbols to herd people into into uh, actions that they would never fall for otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the last three years is probably a good example of that, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I had a I've had a surge of interest um, uh, when the pandemic hit um, because of this idea that. Uh, um, there is an attempt, there will be an attempt to create another doomsday event, the one that brought down, and I say this, this would go into details of the book, but the book being largely about two golden ages, a mythical golden age that was destroyed um, by a doomsday event that created all the archetypal um, uh, scarring that, uh, you know, uh, stalks the human psyche, the collective mm. human psyche. And the... Uh, um, down through centuries where those that would like to return to a golden age uh, are attempting to, how can I put this? They, it's the idea that they want to trigger a new golden age by a new doomsday event. So you get a kind of a symmetry of history, golden mm -hmm. age, loss of golden age, period building up to new doomsday that uh, ushers a new golden age. But this is a golden age that will be run by elites um with uh you know the technologies their idea of a uh of transhumanism as the basis of um uh where the human species should go under their command if you know what i mean let's say you know it, it, this is this is what um i'm hoping most people um sort of cotton on to and i think when the pandemic hit it panicked a lot of people and a sudden interest uh happened where where anybody who had said this might be a factor, this might be part of an attempt, a, a global culling or something, became very interested in these topics. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, there's been a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a surge in interest again. Yeah. Um, so I mean, maybe if it's possible, we could backtrack a bit and maybe I'd like to, I'd like to start with, I, I feel like what to me, it seems like the foundational aspect of this, which is Saturn in the sky, you know, cosmologically, what's going on? What was happening to create the, you know, the trauma that you're talking about, um, and 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 then the the subsequent influence on on mythology and so forth down the ages. I mean, what was going on in the sky? Right. Well, um, I, I think the best way to, you know, this goes back to my um, experience with the professor uh, at university and so on. Uh, generally speaking, in the modern age. The way mythology describes the planets as gods and where they were sitting, what their influences were, is so at odds with where we see them today that they 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 can't conceive of uh, of, of there being any sort of reality behind uh, what was being reported. 
But if we take it at face value, the ancients were reporting a sky that was ex exceedingly almost totally different to the one that we see today. So we've always known about what's called the five naked eye planets, and Saturn is one of them. But Saturn is a pinprick on the edge of the solar system that until Renaissance times, uh, we supposedly had no idea had rings even. Uh, it was only the uh, the uh, invention of the, of the telescope that uh, allowed people to see that Saturn had rings. Um, and yet Saturn in mythology is the supreme god archetype. Uh, and we know from um, the Greeks, uh, uh, you know, Aristotle and, and from Plato and so on, but particularly Aristotle, that the wandering stars, the five naked eye planets, um, were the gods of mythology. In other mm. words, there was a connection between these luminous objects and the stories that are centered on these um, these these mythical god figures. And this is where uh, it becomes interesting for people who understand what uh, Carl Jung, uh, with his concepts of um, human arch uh, psychological archetypes and so on like that, uh, th this is where you can look into mythology and see that the in the, that the, the way that the gods are portrayed is very much an archetype on the human uh, you know the human psyche and that the planet saturn loomed so large in their understanding of its role of what was going on in the heavens that it seems almost farcical given our current uh our current solar system uh make up the uh, configuration that we have uh, today it seems preposterous that these people were making a connection with the actual planet mm -hmm. uh, Saturn at that time yet that's exactly what they say they were doing and up until about two and a half thousand years ago the most important thing that humans were doing on the planet was watching the skies mm -hmm. and the reason for that was basically an event called doomsday and many multiple events after that that radically changed what happened on the planet uh, for uh, human existence um, at a time that is linked to the um, demise of the god Saturn. So if we, where Saturn theory comes into this is the idea that uh, the Earth was originally a satellite of a brown dwarf star that would later on become the planet Saturn. Mm -hmm. And that that brown dwarf star with its, with its uh, satellites, which would have included Mars, was captured by the sun in a highly catastrophic uh, event witnessed by human beings mm. that radically changed the world from a primordial sort of um, eternal duskiness to this golden age of brilliance where Saturn, the god, the bringer of light, loomed large in the northern uh, celestial realms of, uh, of the planet, ultimately to fall from that position and be banished to the outer parts of the, of the solar system. Of course, to mainstream science, this is preposterous. This is, but this is what mythology says. Mm. And so, if you take them at their word, um, I, I'll just uh, give a quote here. I always give this in interviews because I think it sums up things perfectly. It's Eduardo Cardona. He's one of the you know top guys who um, pioneered Saturn theory after Velikovsky. He was part of Velikovsky's inner circle. He was kind of uh, fell out with uh, Velikovsky. Went on to his own work. And he's the man that I tend to sort of uh, refer to in terms of the more scientific cosmological ideas. But 
this is his quote, and I'll read it. Um, quote, the evidence of myth which points to Saturn having once occupied a position above Earth's north polar regions is voluminous. There is not a race on Earth that has not preserved at least one account which states as much. According to this evidence, Saturn occupied a central position in the north celestial regions. It rotated and rotated widely, but other than that, it was immovable. Now, the doomsday event that has scarred humanity is what brought that to an end. It's what displaced uh, Saturn's position, um, uh, you know, according to that uh, uh, interpretation of mythology uh, and, uh, you know, put the world into the current sort of scarcity model that we have uh, uh, in, in, in the current environment. Uh, so we... In making this interpretation that the, the mythologists, the people who created mythology, the various mythologies around the world, and this is a powerful factor, all these different cultures have a similar story. They express it differently, but it's a very, very similar story. And people have tried to say it spread from a central point, but we know that that doesn't work very well, that what we what we should be seeing is they all saw the same thing and expressed mm. it differently according to their cultures. Mm. So Saturn theory is, is that, you know, we, it behooves us in Saturn theory to provide a cosmological explanation for how that could have happened, that this planet could have been up there, that it glowed like a sun. Mm. Uh, like the alchemist said, Saturn, you know, Saturn was the, our first sun and the best sun um, that we ever had, um, you know, way before this, uh, this current uh, sun. You, you find this repeated in many times in various world cultures so comparative mythology is a very strong aspect of finding out what they saw believing mm. what they saw and now trying to provide a an actual physics and, and cosmology that uh that can explain what they saw yeah beautiful and and the thing is that they didn't you know as you you've already kind of uh alluded to the these ancient peoples they didn't simply you now they weren't arbitrary they didn't just manufacture a fairy tale to you know entertain themselves or to comfort themselves like you know one of these crutches that you mentioned they they weren't arbitrary like that at all they were actually documenting things in their own style and their own way and and i um i recently not long ago i interviewed uh patrick whose surname escapes me right now but a professor who's been doing um some great work into these ancient cultures around the world and the way that they documented events um uh in relation to sea levels and they've actually correlated all these different accounts and stories so-called fables and actually shown that they correlate with the different sea levels you know much lower sea levels as they would have been back then so a bunch of different cultures around the world they've actually proved that the, their reports are not arbitrary and they're not um figurative they're actual actually literally uh accounting um what's happening in the world around them, uh, which is, you know, something that we're still, you know, in the mainstream world tr trying to get our heads around. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to add to that, you know, there's plenty of, of evidence to support the kind of thinking that you're you're outlining here. Yeah, so, so basically what you're doing is you're establishing something through, uh, a, a, you know, basis of most people's uh, approach to truth through multiple witness accounts. Yeah. Do they agree with each other? You know, in, in legal terms, when you get multiple witnesses, if their stories diverge all over the place, you know something's wrong and somebody's not telling the truth. But when the stories, uh, you know, uh, are given at, in, in separate accounts, 
and there is a merging of likeness in the stories, you know that you're getting to something of a truth as to what happened. And in this case, cultures, separate cultures, are the, the multiple witnesses that are pointing to a, a very different past, a very different cosmological past to what the uniformitarian dogma of today's science tells us took place. Hmm. But you see, it's 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 that uniformitarian thing that that we've we've all been taught in school. It's billions of years old. Everything happens slowly. Uh, that um, you know, it's increments that are hardly noticed, and so on. And uh, even if even if you know we had situations. Uh, described in mythology as they are mankind couldn't possibly have been around at these times they were too far into the past and when you have that you get a phenomenon where people start to interpret mythology mythology um where it doesn't match what we see today so the mistake is uniformitarian science works on the principle that what we see today is the key to what happened in the past, mm -hmm. right? It's that idea of uh, that you can uh, you can get that key, but this is a flawed idea uh, in terms of telling what the past is, particularly doing retro calculations of cosmos, uh, you know, planets and things, you know, um, asteroids, comets, all this sort of stuff. This retro idea um, doesn't actually tell you. Uh, the point when these things exploded into life or or uh you know it's, it's it's like the old story if if you see a satellite that's been launched in 1960 or 1964 going around uh the earth and so on if you know it was launched in 1964 yeah you know how it happens but if you just see it and you say when did that launch you'll never be able to retro calculate its launch date based mm. on its current movements mm. and this is what modern science has convinced everybody we should do for virtually everything that is historical, despite the mythological record and what it says. And so they contrive, um, you know, uh, Dave Talbot, one of the one of the great Saturn theory comparative mythologists in in, in Saturn theory uh, thinking, uh, you know, he he, he points to John J. O'Neill, the the um, uh, great ac academic from the Victorian era, who just couldn't reconcile. Um, what the what mythology was saying about Saturn uh, with what he saw in the sky. So he so he literally created the 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 situation where modern scholarship, wherever you see Saturn worship, they automatically put it onto sun worship uh -huh. because of the dominance of the sun that you have today. So you get a complete misidentification. So so you know we're, we're told these people were sun worshippers uh, all the time, but when you look at the archetype of the sun god. It's the it's the Saturn archetype uh, that is prevalent in all mythologies. What you know, whether it's Baal or whether it's Ra in Egypt or or, or you know even the Ra of the uh, Polynesians and so on. This is an archetype that is consistent with the Saturn archetype, not with the Sol Sun uh, archetype. But modern academia says it has to conform with that. And I would add that anybody who you know, looks at mythology as it's presented today. We have, we have films, Hollywood films, Clash of the Titans. They 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 portray mythology mythology as a a psychodrama. Mm. You know, where gods are portrayed as just simply human beings with immortal status, and they all have the same fallibilities and so on. And these stories that we often take as you know, do you know the mythology of Greece? Do you know the mythology of Rome? Do you know the mythology of Egypt and so on? A lot of this is the interpretation of people 
who have tried to reconcile sun worship into the myth mythological record that they're studying. So they create these psychodramas, whereas if you look at the original texts and languages, it's a madhouse. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they have they've effectively been editing mythology to make it more narrative friendly uh, in terms of its stories than, than looking at it and saying, this is data. All right. They don't see it as data mm. because it doesn't match our skies today. Uh, however, if you if you can find a way to posit how Saturn could have once glowed as our sun uh, in the celestial north, you're on your way to uh, to discovering things about mythology that not only frees you in an understanding of our past, but I, in my opinion, definitely um, helps sort of. How, how can I put it? It's it, it, it's a wonderful way of leaving superstition behind mm -hmm. and moving forward with intellectual knowledge, a gnosis, so to speak, of uh, of events in the past, as opposed to superstitious ideas. Mm. And in that way, it's a direct challenge to many of the ma world's major religions in their current form. Yeah, um, which which we'll get to. Hopefully, we'll have time to get to that because um, yeah. that's rich. Um, as far as the you know the events in the sky, um, can you give us you know a little bit of time frame and the background as to what was happening? Was there a lead up to it? Um, what were the solar sort of uh, solar system dynamics in play? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, I I provide a chronological sort of um, rundown in in my book Set and Death Cult uh, at, at the bottom because for many people it's understanding just how different this approach changes history particularly the history of our solar system, the natural history of our solar system. But up until um, I would estimate um, about, about 20,000 years ago to 40,000 years ago, about 20,000 years ago, and you can't be, I would say it's unfortunate in, in our circle of people who, who study Saturn Death Cult, there are people who are trying to nail down these dates to the, the, you know the day and the hour mm. you know with a gregorian calendar approach to it and so and when you're sort of talking about such massive changes in 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 um, solar system configuration this i think is important uh, impossible but what 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 i as a broad thumbnail out outline uh earth was a satellite with a brown dwarf star that was in what a free floating brown dwarf star in interstellar space of which there could be up to 7,000 of these things uh, between us and the next nearest star, according to some accounts. Very difficult to optically see because they don't glow and they, 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 um, they create a plasma sheath around them that makes them virtually invisible except for infrared and uh, radio astronomy and so on. And when you have to be specifically looking for those signatures to find that, and modern science isn't interested in looking for those signatures, they're looking for exoplanets around stars like our main sequence star. Mm -hmm. So Earth is under this. Um, Earth is is part of this system under a brown dwarf star that is captured um, at around about uh, twelve thousand BC. Uh, uh, sorry, twelve thousand years ago, ten thousand BC, using that that sort of figure, and. As a result of that capture, the brown dwarf star uh, explodes into a light. Uh, it, it basically fissions. It has a, a, a nova-like experience. And the 
result of that is that whatever is living on its satellites, one of them being Earth, is the, the environment on this, the satellites is radically changed and you get what a mythology refers to the launching of a golden age. It starts catastrophically. This, you know, it would have been an extinction event for quite a few uh, species and so on. Humans seem to have survived. And they tell us of the um, Walt Thornhill, who's passed away now, one of the one of our uh, top theorists in this. He he dubbed it the Purple Dawn of Creation. It was a a time when humans lived in a perpetual duskiness. You couldn't calculate time. There was nothing. There was nothing out there to um, uh, to reference uh, celestially uh, to to basically be able to measure time. When this explodes, everything changes suddenly humans have access to the greater cosmos and the light that it brings and the uh, um, the transparency to the rest of the cosmos brings about the beginning of being able to calculate time. And this is the fundamental change in the human experience, the, this ability to now calculate time and why the Saturn God archetype is associated with time, Greek mm -hmm. chronos, you know, chronometer, yeah. chronometer and so on like that. So this beginning of the golden age is a beginning when humans now have the concept of weights and measures uh, that uh, uh, is brought about by this change in environment. And they enter into this golden age of, the, you know, basically the golden age is a, a, a lack of wants. There's eternal harvests going on around the planet. Um, they, uh, uh, as a result of the changes, there is a really it's a golden age of exploration and uh meeting up and 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 finding things and different cultures starting to develop but central to it is the acknowledgement that it's only possible for because this capture event by the sun that you know later we find out explodes saturn into a glowing ball mm. that changes life on earth in the meantime you've got this other light that you can now see on the uh, um, eastern horizon that seems to be getting bigger and bigger um down through the golden age and by um uh by about 6000 bc the effect of that which is of course the sun is approaching it uh destroys the relationship between earth and saturn it displaces saturn and the earth undergoes a doomsday event of you know magnitude near extinction event for humanity uh for a, a, a lot of people uh, a lot of species on the planet and there is a chaotic period where all these planetary bodies that, they're, 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 that people could see, Mars, the newly birthed Venus, which we can get into later how that comes about, they're all displaced. And this chaotic period um, is deadly dangerous for people on Earth because of near e uh, events where various bodies, Mars, Venus and such, come into close proximity with Earth, create all kinds of... Uh, uh, interplanetary destructive uh, events and such. And it doesn't settle down until about two and a half thousand years ago fully. About one thousand, about the time of the biblical exodus, which is where Valakovsky comes into the, the picture, where he put that down to a close pass um, with Venus um, mm -hmm. and so on. It's about that time that the Earth settles into what you would call modern recorded history. And but over time, People lose the because the because the uh, skies become placid. People lose the connection with what was going on before and how dangerous it was 
mm. uh, during this capture, uh, capture moment mm. um, when Saturn was displaced as Earth's original sun. So, yeah, 12,000 years ago is, uh, I put it down to the capture, the beginning of a, of a golden age that displaces the purple dawn of creation, which had, goes back into time. I don't know how far back. No one can know. Uh, about uh, 8,000 years, uh, 6,000 years later, could be as long as 8,000, but 6,000 years ago is the massive doomsday event that sets up the whole aspect of where we are as a collective species in terms of our psyche, in terms of understanding um, our past, uh, the effects that, that things have had on us from our past and how they have continued to affect us down through to the modern age. That doomsday event was probably the biggest event in human history uh, in terms of what has been related in mythology, bigger than anything that we've had, you know, Second World War, nothing compared to this. And so uh, 6,000 years ago, the Earth enters into this new environment and you have a sequence of ages, Silver Age, Bronze Age or Heroic Age, into the now modern Iron Age that the esoteric tra traditions talk about. Um, we are in that modern Iron Age period uh, that kind of starts about two and a half thousand years ago. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, not to be confused with the scientific demarcation, Stone Age, Bronze Age, that, that sort of stuff. This is purely esoteric thinking as to where mankind is spiritually, psychologically, in relation to his environment, in relation to what's happened in the heavens. And uh, and 6,000 years ago, it kicks off that, what I call decline, that descent into, you know, slavery, um, warfare, some of the most atrocious, uh, and some of the, the greatest atrocities ever committed by humans against other humans. And it's all to do with uh, what happened 6,000 years ago, a doomsday event, and the subsequent uh, behavior of human beings in relation to that uh um to that event what was the you know because this is obviously got a huge psychological component to it so yeah. when when this this earth-shaking trauma occurred um you know what do you what do you think just to flesh it out if we can pull on those psychological threads a little bit what led to then you know these people who were must have been you know everybody basically scared out of their minds at least for some period of time and then you know this period of as you said this period of violence um mm -hmm. which probably had not existed up to that point in time um yeah just to sort of walk us maybe walk us through that uh, your ideas around that well what happens uh, with the doomsday event is the earth undergoes a transformation in terms of its environment where seasons seasonality uh, becomes a factor of life on earth there's a massive change the poles the poles um cover over with ice um, there are no longer the sort of eternal harvests worldwide um, that they were experiencing during the golden age. And so scarcity becomes an issue for human survival. Now, the golden age in the immature spiritual mind is an age where you get to kick back, the fish jump into your frying pan, you, 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 know, you just need to reach up to this eternal low-hanging fruit. You don't have to worry about where you get your next meal, hmm. all right? Right up to the modern day since the doomsday event, that's been the pre preeminent concern of every human on this planet. When do I get my next meal? We create economies designed to provide that next meal 
uh, consistently to us. And when things go wrong, we go to war with each other to defend our access to uh, the, our next meal, as opposed to somebody else's access to the next meal. So scarcity is the is the massive change that takes place. What happens after the doomsday thing, though, is that the Saturn god archetype undergoes a transformation as well. It goes from being the benevolent creator of life as we know it, not life itself, but life as we know it, mm. uh, in the sense of a, um, a, a bright light, and uh, alluded to before in this golden age era, a wonderful time of, um, of, of exploration in every aspect, physical, spiritual, everything about it was opened up. People, you know, uh, could, could measure things and, uh, um, and, and work things out in ways they never could before. And so Saturn is associated with uh, rules, um, laws, weights and measures, all right? Weights and measures become the means by which humans deal with each other, particularly strangers who meet up. It's the weights and measures that are the glue for being able to trust people, mm -hmm. which comes back to something that is very prevalent in today's world. This is why it is so, I believe, so important for the modern uh, person uh, to understand these things because its relevance is that in the golden age true justice is achieved everybody respects the weights and measures and they are enforced in such a way that everybody knows they will get justice if they feel they are wronged mm -hmm. okay the original silver age priesthoods that try to preserve that justice that those weights and measures they are the basis of what would become the priesthoods of the major religions over time but you see, what happens is that as you get humans living uh, less years than they did, uh, you know, somebody pointed out to me that um, the gravity was probably much less during the golden age. People lived longer lives because you didn't have that gravitational pull on the system mm -hmm. uh, that people have today that's, uh, that, you know, tends to sort of wear and tear us out. And also, um, also, there was a lot of talks of uh, much larger humans, giants in, on the Earth in those absolutely. days. Absolutely, yeah. So long-lived giants, this sort of thing. I mean, just, you know, even the creatures that we dig up were bigger. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, my, my erstwhile author, Ted Holden, he wrote the, you know, seminal piece on the impossible dinosaurs, how in this, this gravitational environment, they can't survive. They couldn't survive. Mm. Um, you know, so much so that when they were first discovered, people thought that they were wading creatures because that's the only way you could actually you know, um, support themselves. We know that when a, a whale beaches, it ultimately suffocates itself under its own weight mm. if it doesn't have buoyancy. And yet these things walked around uh, on the earth and they were enormous. Um, so there had to have been a lower gravity. And Ted puts um, the gravity of earth uh, during these uh, the time when Saturn was its main um, sun, he would put it down to two, uh, only two thirds of what it is today. Um, yeah, wow. yeah. So that, you know, you can imagine how much stronger we'd be. Keep, and just little things start to make sense. You know, the megalithic stuff that we yeah. see from ancient cultures, the ability to move rocks that are immensely heavy by today's standards were probably a little bit easier mm. uh, under these conditions. And so, so anyway, uh -huh. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I'll just briefly interject. Hold that thought. I want you to continue. Um, just for anyone listening, you know, just to reiterate the gravity thing, you know, if you particularly if you go and look at the Thunderbolts research, uh, which is extensive, they explain 
gravity as an electromagnetic phenomenon. Okay, so for anyone out there who's kind of fallen into this trap of, oh, you know, gravity skeptics, we'll call them, um, it's an electromagnetic thing. So you don't even have to think of it as a, a separate force unto itself. I don't want to waste any time on that stuff, but yeah, um, it's yeah. electrical primarily. So go I'd, on. I'd only just add that they've made the mistake of creating gravity as a constant, like they did with light. Yeah. Uh, you know, light is not a constant. Gravity is not a constant. We know this because the French are going out of their minds with their um, with their um, kilo that they have stuck away. It keeps it keeps getting heavier by electrons. Right, right? now that just. You know, to the electric universe guy, that just tells you that our electrical relationship with the sun is variable. Mm -hmm. And so gravity will be variable at times. It also explains the gravity changes that uh, as Saturn was approaching the sun, it would have undergone lots of electrical changes, near misses, uh, the approach. They would have electrically felt each other out. And this would have had highly detrimental effects to gravity on Earth at that time. And uh, and it's quite possible that, you know, going from the giant creatures to the less giant, to the smaller, to, to you know, the, the, the giant mammals to the smaller mammals, it seems that the extinction events were probably related to changes in gravity, mm -hmm. uh, sudden changes in gravity based on the electric uh, relationship between Earth and Saturn and, and, and ultimately on. But anyway, getting back to what we're saying is, is, uh, is that these priesthoods, that emerge in what's called the Silver Age period, the first thousand years after the great, uh, um, um, the great uh, cataclysm, uh, doomsday event. Um, amongst these people, they look back on the Golden Age, and this is very much the sentiment that you see in the modern elites today. And they think to themselves, "Gee, they had it good. I'd like to have it good. You know what? If I could get everybody else to do the work." And, and they have to give me their, the, you know, the product of their labors. I can live like somebody used to live in the, in, the, in the golden age. No worries. No worries about food and so on like that. And I always point to, um, in, for those people who have a biblical reference, I come from a biblical background and so on. The catastrophic doomsday event that we're talking about is represented in biblical studies by the fall from the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. The Garden of Eden is the golden age period. All right, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The fall represents uh, is the biblical version of the catastrophic doomsday event, and the, the consequence of that fall is specified that by the sweat of your brow, you will make the earth yield its fruits. They never had to worry about that before. You mm -hmm. see, so these people don't want to put sweat on their brow; they want other people's brows to get sweaty, digging out the fruits of the earth. So and then they want to take tax that for themselves. And there's only a couple of effective ways of doing this. You can either use the threat of violence. You will go out in the fields and work for me. And if you don't, I'll kill you. All right. But that only works to a certain level. You know, um, uh, the average bloke, no matter how tough he is, can probably only put the, um, you know, stand over uh, a group of people no more than 11 12 or whatever like that at some point they're always going to rebel against that kind of force and so you have to look to a way that you can enslave people without people knowing they are being enslaved and the way to do that is to ultimately convince people that you are the voice of the god that ruled during the golden age you have his authority to be able to 
determine what the weights and measures are. And then there's a short skip there where you have one set of weights and measures that you work by and one set of weights and measures that other people are subjected to that ensures that you have a take of what they do. And the threat of divine retribution is what hangs over people rather than the threat of immediate violence. Mm. Okay. And, and so mechanisms, control mechanisms become, become the, the objective of a lot of these corrupted priesthoods who look for ways to make sure that the priesthood and the people who back up the priesthood get the bulk of the wealth generated by the bulk of the population and that the bulk of the population never wakes up and goes, why am I doing this and giving it all to you? Yeah. You know, why don't you do a bit of work with us? And so on like that. So that's what I believe starts the whole process and is ultimately refined and whether people like it or not to me central banking is a quasi-religious concept it is a form of temple tax mm -hmm. uh, that has uh you know they 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 even they even build their buildings to look like temples mm. you know the th the three entrances the all these things that come from ancient temples and so on they have they have that there they they stick all these symbols and incantations all over their money and so on to which is completely pointless you know uh, really in terms of what money functions as why do you need all these symbols stuffed all over um uh, you know money and so on like that because it triggers people into, into thinking that they must be in charge because mm -hmm. a deep psychological scar says whoever talks for satin and so on is the person in charge and we've got to be careful because satin you know went crazy at one point, decided to wipe, wipe out the whole of humanity. And so we've got to keep him happy and such. And that's the psychological scar that these people work on. Mm. And so this, uh, I just want to recap. So the this would be, I guess, where a large part of, you know, offerings to the gods um, comes in, you know, sort of trying to placate the god or gods. Um, yeah. And this timeline, you, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you said 6,000 years ago, is when the doomsday event happened. Correct. Yeah. And so, just to tie this into Christian thought, because they're still, Roughly, still, yeah, yeah, approximately, approximately. Yeah, so, take, you know? so this was when we were, you know, ejected from the Garden of Eden, so to speak, and this was the beginning of the, if you like, the Earth as we know it, the creation of the Earth as yeah, we know seasonal, it. seasonal change. Yeah. Because um, yeah. um, because that six thousand, you know, figure is is very prominent in the Christian psyche, particularly the fundamentalist. Um, branches, you know, they literally talk about the world not existing prior to the six thousand year timeline. Like, there's there's yeah. nothing. That was when it was created. Yeah, and yet that's not what the Bible actually says. It's very clear that there was a void um, before, and that void is a very bad translation for what all the other mythologies talk about the purple dust dawn, uh, dawn because it talks about the spirit of God um, floating. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here for people who are sort of uh, biblical fundamentalists, but I'm just giving the basic idea that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the spirit of the Lord hovered over the ocean. Okay, now the, that ocean uh, should not be confused with the water oceans of earth. That ocean was a celestial ocean that mm -hmm. existed before the advent of um in the Bible, it's called the let there be light moment. Yeah. All right. So the capture of earth by the sun that explodes Saturn into this uh, ball of light 
that brings about this whole concept of the calculation of time and so on. That's your let there be light moment mm. uh, in the Bible. But prior to that is this, it conforms with all the other mythologies. There's this darkened period. And if you go into other parts of uh, other texts in the Bible, particularly in Jeremiah, also in Ezekiel, uh, you find that uh, there's a consistency. You can, you can wheedle out of it that humans existed at this time as well. They just didn't exist in covenant relationship with the gods that is associated with bringing about the change of the earth, the let there be light moment. But there were humans running around. And this is one of my big bugbears with uh, Christianity. The Bible is very clear that there were other humans around before Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve is not the first but uh, humans. They are the first humans in a relationship with the biblical God as it's, as it's portrayed. We know this, and it's, it's crazy because people just overlook so much. Cain is crapping himself, all right, after he kills his brother. Now think about it. There's only supposed to be Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, all right? But Cain is worried about what these other people are going to do to him because he killed, he murdered his brother. And so God creates this thing called the mark of Cain. And the mark of Cain is not a physical mark. It is a bounty that will be put on any group of humans that hunt down Cain to kill, uh, to take justice on him for killing his brother. Mm-hmm. In other words, there had to be other people around for the Lord to say, I will take, I think it's 30 or 12. I can't remember what the actual number is, but it's certainly more than just Adam and Eve. You know, the, the next brother, Seth, isn't even born at this stage. So the fact that he gets met, that he, he goes to another part of the planet, he meets up with somebody, gets married, he's in the land of Nod and all this sort of stuff, and, that, and he's worried about people. And he needs God's assurance that if they come after him, he'll take retribution on them for killing Cain. Why, biblically speaking, because there was only one witness and two witnesses are required. God was the only witness and you can only establish a a crime with two or more witnesses. So he was protecting him on that on that on that basis, which implies that there were other people around. Mm -hmm. So, yes, from a Christian point of view, okay. The let there be light moment is about 12,000 years in the past. And the, the fall from Eden is about 6,000 years. And that comports very nicely with most of uh, the other mythological timelines. I think it's important um, when I reference the celestial ocean um, in terms of the biblical reference and how that relates into Saturn theory is this understanding of Earth as a satellite of a brown dwarf star in a, in a free floating interstellar space environment. Uh, before its capture um, by the um, sun, uh, what's postulated in the uh, electric universe model is that when the electrical field of that brown dwarf star is out in free-floating space, it will create an opaque plasma sheath, a Langmuir sheath, which is part of the whole process of, you know, electrical engineers will know what I'm talking about by the way electricity um, fields can create these kind of um, uh, fields, uh, uh, these sheaths, yep. let's say a Langmuir uh, sheath, a, um, we call them plasma sheaths or plasma bubbles. Yeah. And if you're inside that plasma bubble, not only does the light from your host brown door star bounce around to create a uniform light uh, on, the, on whatever satellites are revolving around that brown door star, the, uh, the, 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 the result of that is also that you have a very dusky uh, environment because no starlight is getting in. You're not seeing this, this, uh, um, the uh, 
the stars outside because it's being blocked by a roiling plasma sheath. Mm-hmm. And that has its own property and it lo- it looks like the ocean. So so for people on the planet standing on the shore of an ocean and so on, as they look to what we would call the horizon, it continues into this plasma sheath. So you get almost an, um, a, a sort of an overlapping effect. So the ocean becomes one with the skies, with the ocean, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the way that they envisage this. And somewhere unknown to them, but at, at what would have been a uh, uh, the celestial north of uh, Earth, its northern point, um, you know, if you read the book, it goes from phase lock. The Earth goes from phase lock around this brown dwarf to being swept under as 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 the um, brown dwarf has been pulled into the sun uh, at increasing speeds. But there's always this. What happens is that Saturn, this glowing red brown dwarf from the Earth's perspective, seems to be a mobile in the same spot mm-hmm. uh, of the of the sky, doing nothing. It's a pale disk um, that uh, just sits there. And you can't see anything else because of this roiling ocean. So that's uh, of plasma. That is the that is the ocean that the spirit in Genesis is hovering over, mm-hmm. because the let there be light moment happens when Saturn, the brown dwarf star that will become Saturn, when its electrical field becomes overwhelmed by contact with the sun's much stronger electrical field, it short circuits, and what happens at that point is. The, um, the 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 host star, the brown dwarf, will fission and lose all all of that um, plasma sheath will be equalized um, by the sun's uh, own electric field, and it will be almost in an instant will be made transparent. Mm-hmm. So the let there be light moment is you know literally takes it's about a two or three hour experience in the history of the Earth of transformation, which when you come out at the end of it things are so radically changed. There's these little bright dots um, where a plasma, roiling plasma ocean had been. Mm-hmm. That pale disk is suddenly a bright, bright um, uh, glowing ball. Mm-hmm. And there's all this debris that takes on the, um, takes on it's ejected matter, most of it water, uh, that takes on the effect of looking like some kind of giant serpent um, you know, wrapping itself around um, what had been this dull disc that was now glowing. They look like they're in battle and so on, and, you know, to the point that all this debris looks like it obscures um, the sun, uh, the uh, Saturn and its glowing disc. And eventually you also get the phenomenon that the water goes into orbit mm-hmm. around uh, uh, Saturn and produces the famous rings. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and for, this launches the golden age and this is the rings are what ultimately lead to the uh, connection between the Saturn archetype and the horned God of old religion, uh, where so many gods are represented with horns with a solar disc between the horns, whether it's Baal or, or, or even the uh, um, Tengrist uh, peoples of um, uh, the, the steppe lands, these sorts of things. It's the idea of something which is a horn. And the reason for that is that when the rings appear and the plasma bubble is uh, made transparent, the effect of the sun's distant light, still distant light, is enough to cast a shadow onto the rings. And because Saturn is rotating and the Earth is rotating, um, 
but the sun is not rotating at this point round. Slowly, it's just coming in until it gets to a point where uh, where it starts to begin the rotation. From Earth's perspective, the rings look like they're circling round uh, because you can you've got that reference where the shadow of Saturn on its rings is turning. From our perspective, it's just it's just a relative um, observation uh, from from the Earth's perspective. Mm. But that shadow creates a horn-like look round mm. the face of God, so mm -hmm. to speak which is, becomes the solar disk of the horned god mm -hmm. uh, that we know from mythology. And, uh, you know, the, the, this, this is the, the almost unfathomable vision that people had of the heavens um, after this particular time, up to the time of, for biblical people, cut, being cast out of the Garden of Eden and being, um, and being, uh, um, is subjected to this doomsday event where everything falls apart. Quite literally, that configuration of planets falls apart. What's preposterous to most people is to create that effect. You have to have Earth in axial alignment, polar alignment, with Saturn for that to happen. And for many physicists, this is just—it's just too too much. Mm -hmm. There's no way you're going to get that, and so on. But there is a way you're going to get that, and it has been observed. We've seen it with the Shoemaker-Levy nine comet when it broke up. Uh, before hitting uh, Jupiter, what was that 99, 97? I can't remember when Somewhere it happened. There, yeah. Somewhere around about there, late 90s. All right. It broke up into 22 fragments that then arranged themselves into linear fashion. Mm -hmm. All right. So they were spinning on an axis and they were strung out. It was called the string of pearls mm. all right, that they had. And it circles um, Jupiter. And it eventually crashes into Jupiter in that configuration. Now, Jupiter is a mini solar system in its own right, and as some people describe it that way, and in my opinion, was itself a brown dwarf star in, in way primordial times. But if that could happen at that scale, then Saturn's approach and eventual tearing up with the sun, it, it could be done at the bigger scale of planetary bodies, brown dwarf stars with its... Um, with the with the satellites, we also see linear systems are actually ubiquitous right throughout the universe. They're called Harbig Harrow uh, systems, and science has yet been able to. They call it a jet, a plasma, you know, a, a gaseous jet. Mm -hmm. But jets do not maintain their integrity like a like water out of a hose pipe jetting out of a hose pipe does in atmosphere. Uh, you know, it's the atmosphere that keeps that water together mm -hmm. as it jets. All right. It's the same thing with gas. If you're in a near vacuum environment of space, it'll just dissipate. It won't. It won't keep that jet-like um, consistency that spans light years in some cases, uh, phenomenal amounts of um, of, uh, of time. But that's all turning in a polar axial alignment and maintaining itself. And you know, in the, in the electric universe, we say there's only one force in the universe that can create that phenomenon that's electrical forces it's not mm. gravity it's not gravity that uh, by itself that is doing that so you know there's plenty to show that this axial alignment to produce saturn at the earth's celestial north um is very much a feature of what can be achieved when one understands the physics of the electric universe model so going on from that um what, you know, in, in speaking about connections with the Bible and so on, uh, that takes us into how world religions uh, ultimately form from these events uh, as they were. 
And why, for many Christians, it's a bit of a revelation to find out not only that Adam and Eve were not, according to the Bible, the first people on the earth, but this also brings into question the domineering and dominant concept that it is a world religion that must be applied to all. And, you know, it's the same goes for the other three major, uh, well, the other two um, Abrahamic religions. All right. It's this idea that if Adam and Eve were the first humans on the planet, then everybody is subject to that God who made mm -hmm. Adam and Eve. But if, if they are not the first humans on the planet, then the Bible becomes a record of a legal um, a legal agreement made between the descendants of those two people separate to the other peoples who were existent at the time of the planet. But that does not work well for people who are looking for domination, world domination, mm. because to be able to say you're under me because I represent God, I'm the voice of God on earth and God made you and all uh, as a descendant of the first humans that he made. So by descent from Adam and Eve, you're under our authority. That works well for a control mechanism that is seeking global dominance. All right. Whereas the true Silver Age, what I call Melchizedekian uh, priesthoods and so on, that come out from that, their priority is simply to reestablish a society on earth, all right, that becomes a model for the whole of the earth for justice. Mm -hmm based on weights and measures that are revealed by God. That's the biblical concept there. The failure of the people who are designated to undergo that task of being a representative is the story of the Israelite people of the Bible. It's, it's their failure to live up to that uh, agreement. And the story really boils down to the God rescuing such people who he has had a contract with in, 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 you know, um, at a later stage to once again bring about the idea of a model of justice on the earth that existed during the golden age that was lost as a result of supposedly the sin of Adam and Eve from a biblical perspective. Mm. Now, I don't go into that in, in, in the Satan death cult stuff, but that is something to keep in mind, especially for those who have a biblical background. Uh, if you are reading the book, um, why that fits in well with the biblical idea if you can get past the idea of a young earth six days adam and eve created everybody comes from them and therefore everybody is subject to uh, all descendants of adam and eve are subject to the um the agreements stipulated in the bible yeah thanks for clarifying that um okay so <clears throat> i mean i've got a few sort of ideas around well there's some ideas you've mentioned that we could flesh out perhaps, but uh, if you if you want to continue with that line of thinking, or we can go back and revisit some of the the things in the sky, the mythological and symbolical aspects, and how that then you know like the battle between you know the serpent and yeah. uh, and you know this kind of stuff is is so huge. I mean, it, it's yeah. so it's such a global thing. I mean, it's fascinating to to hear it broken down like this. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, this is the pure cosmology of Saturn theory. All right. Uh, you know, before you get into how it affected and uh, you know and its connections to the human psyche and and our you know descent as I call it into the barbarism of slavery, human sacrifice, and so on. Understanding the environment, understanding what these people were looking at. That's why the book is very illustrated um, because it's you know I, I found that you have to create illustrations to show the concepts. 
uh, because it's so alien to mm. what modern science tells us happens in space. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So again, just recapping on that, Saturn theory posits that the, the solar system as we know it today is not a result of a general accretion disk theory where, it, where everything that you see today was formed in place and has stayed in that place. And that's been the, the situation for at least five, four to five billion years. What it posits is that um, our solar system has been uh, reached its current configuration through a process of capture. Lots of rogue elements have been captured into it uh, as part of a, um, uh, you know, basically as part of a, electrical uh no i'm getting ahead of myself on that one but basically speaking the sun starts off with maybe jupiter and its satellites and then saturn and its satellites are captured i haven't worked out uranus neptune and pluto what their uh, involvement is they're not part of the naked eye planets mm -hmm. uh, so nobody knows that so um, so they have a separate history to to work out, which is all part of the process. But most definitely, Saturn and Jupiter are not from the same accretion disk, if you mm -hmm. know what I mean. All right, they, they just that alone puts that to rest in terms of how different they are. They're different axial tilts and so on. So we have this, um, you know, this this cosmology uh, that shows Saturn being captured uh, at a time within human memory. That's also the thing that gets most people's minds, you know, working out uh, uh, out of themselves, trying to figure out how that figures what they've been taught at school, modern physics and so on. And Saturn theory says that the process that creates the series of captures and destructions and so on is all electrically based. It's basically electrical fields sorting themselves out when they come into direct contact with each other. So there is no worlds in collision like Velikovsky's title suggested. He never suggested that they actually collided or mm -hmm. anything, but that essentially their electrical fields bump up against each other, create all kinds of problems for the different planets and, and such, and, uh, and then eventually settle down into an equilibrium, which is very recent and can be disturbed at any time. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if there's another brown dwarf out there, you know, it may come into contact the same way as, as Saturn, whether it's got planets or not. And that would be very, you know, very catastrophic uh, for, for anything that was in that solar system doing that capture. Whether we would survive it is another factor, but the survival of the human species on Earth at this time is, is nothing short of miraculous because their world changes, as we've discussed, mm. uh, you know, from this uh, dull purple dawn existence into a world that had bright bright um uh, disc now in its northern horizon and another big light starting to get bigger as it comes in from the west rings being formed around uh, this uh, light in the sky but you also have to take into account the um two planets that are strung out between saturn and earth one of them is mars all right and the other one uh, is Venus. Now, Venus is postulated in Saturn theory to have been ejected by Saturn as a consequence of its nova-like explosion. So when you get a core of a planet undergoing a fission-like experience, it will fracture uh, these gas giants, these uh, things. 
And if it fractures, what you effectively have, because they're all magnetized because of the electric current that is flowing through these objects, according to Saturn theory, what you get is effectively two magnets with the same polarization. And the lesser magnet will be repelled, ejected. If you know what I mean, just, just you know, if you, if you break a magnet uh, up and so on, um, the bigger part of the magnet will push away uh, the, the, the smaller parts of the magnet um, because of the way things line up. You know, if, if, if positive to positive comes together, there's a repel, repulsion mm -hmm. um, force. And so this is how Venus is born. And Venus becomes this beautiful light in the sky that settles under Saturn, um, you know, just for the sake of argument, settles under Saturn, according to the theory, between Saturn and Mars. But its arrival obliterates Mars. That's why Mars has, is a scarred warrior, mm. a red planet. Um, and I have this debate with uh, a lot of people about Mars and life on it. I believe there was life on Mars, yeah. but it was obliterated. A lot of people don't realize that the northern hemisphere of Mars, I think it's five kilometers. This concludes part one of the show. You'll find part two and related materials in my members-only portal, The Truthiversity, the consciousness-raising university. This creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, videos, blogs, courses, audio files, live internal events, the whole enchilada. Grab yourself a free 24-hour pass at access.truthiversity.com.